Welcome to the latest episode of the Daniel Energy Partners In-Basin Observations Podcast, where we bring you insightful conversations with leaders and experts in the oil field. We are on the road again in Dallas, Texas, visiting Billy Bailey at BP Capital Partners. John and I talk all things energy with Billy, from his start with Boone Pickens to running a hedge fund to his latest move back into energy private equity. We really enjoyed this conversation, and we hope you do too. While we are more lurkers on Twitter, you can find Billy posting there at WRBailey8. Thanks for listening, and on to the discussion. Okay, Billy. so Billy, I guess we've probably known each other for, I don't know, close to 15 years. For sure. I say we're getting old here. Um, <laughs> you came into this space, young dude, you get a job with Boone Pickens. How in the world did that happen? It's a great question. First, thanks for for doing this appreciate it i know you're constantly on the road so coming to dallas grateful for that opportunity to, to be able to sit down with good friends um the boone picking story is a fun one an interesting one and also a story of persistence so i graduated from alabama in 2009 don't hold that against me for any of those football fans out there they're not bama and crimson tide fans but if you if you want to get involved with football we'd love to have you on, yeah. on board um one of the smartest decisions that I made, and, and I'll be very frank, I, I didn't necessarily make too many smart decisions when I was in college, just like many of us around. But <laughs> my dad offered the opportunity for me to sit down with Boone, and that was to go to a lunch. It was actually a lunch in Highland Park Village at Cafe Pacific. And I said yes, which was great. It was a wise decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was with his wife, Madeline Pickens at the time, which was his fourth wife. And she was an, she's an incredible lady. Uh, there's plenty of stories around Madeline as well. She was, she was phenomenal. But I went to this lunch, and it was my father, my mom, Boone, Madeline, and myself. And I am just a football enthusiast. And I also love architecture. My mom, side story, she was one of the first female uh, commercial real estate agents in the city. And then she self-taught, um, self-taught architectural engineering and then became a GC as well as a, an architect for um, spec homes around around the city. Mm-hmm. And so I just kind of have that in my blood and I love football stadiums. So at that point in time, Boone had just donated about $500 million to totally redo what is now known as the T. Boone Pickens um, Stadium at Oklahoma State. And I just started highlighting like all these components of the football stadium that I love, but Boone Pickens Stadium. And Boone like stopped his, and he's just saying, nobody's ever seen these same things. Like you're seeing the same stuff that I wanted in the stadium. So we just hit it off automatically. And about a year later, I ran into him at a great steakhouse in Dallas. If you haven't haven't seen or or eaten a steak at Bob's Steak and Chop House on Lemon, you should go and frequent that place because it is, in my opinion, the best steak in America. And Bob is a very close friend. And Boone was in there and he walked by, (laughs) I was still in college, and he said, you know, what are you doing? And I said, well, sir, I'm still in college. He said, well, when you finish, come talk to me. So the first thing when a, when a billionaire says, come talk to me, that you're going to do is you're going to go freaking talk to the billionaire. Right. Yep. So I finished school, went and spoke with them. We were coming out of, uh, we were still in the midst of the financial crisis. I graduated in May of 2009. So as mm-hmm. we all know, you're kind of bottoming out of the financial right. crisis at that point. And the stock market was about to start appreciating. And I went to Boone's office and he's like, sorry, we got nothing for you. You know, I'm like, let me just sweep the floors. Let me just get a roll. He told me no seven different times. So finally I got super persistent and I had to figure out where he was going to be speaking. And then I decided I was just going to show up. So he donated to the town, downtown um, YMCA. that's now known as the T. Boone Pickens YMCA, which happened to be right across the street from my old office building that I officed at. 
and there was this red tape event where he's going to cut it for the for the grand opening of the renovation for it mm. and i snuck to the front of the line um, snuck through the event it was a closed off uh, private sanctioned event snuck mm. in and stuck out my hand and said mr pickens billy bailey and he said i know who you are what are you doing here <laughs> come to my office on monday so I went to the office on Monday, and he said, look, and I don't typically cuss, but it makes the story more impactful because he actually cussed. And he said, look, if you're not worth the damn, at least you'll have something to put on your resume. Start next Monday. Be here at 730. We'll see what you got. Um, we'll start you off as an intern. My internship started for three months. It was extended for an incremental three months. Then I became a full-time employee after six months right. and totally blessed with work with an incredible team, one of which I'm back working with, which is right. Alex Check. We had um, caught five on the investment committee, got to do everything. My second week on the job, for instance, I was, I had to learn very quickly that, you know what, when you're talking to people, um, you better not be nervous. We all put our pants on the exact same way, whether you're male or female. And that person happened to be Ted Turner that I was presenting to. I didn't know anything about energy and I'm sitting there presenting to Ted Turner about yeah. something that I had learned. And that's kind of how Boone was. He just stuck you into the fire. Um, he, you know, he pushed you into the pool. You either, either you sink or you swim. So. Right forever grateful for it, miss him dearly, and I wish he could see the dynamic energy environment we're in today. Yeah, and uh, but the story, because I, I, you told me this years ago, it's, it is a good one in terms of persistence. And uh, you know, being aggressive is sometimes actually a benefit. You have to so, be. You know, my, my dad always says that um, if you get a no from somebody, is it a hell no or is it a no? Because right. if it's a hell no, then you probably shouldn't call them again. If, if it's a no, then it's kind of like the Dumb and Dumber line, so you're saying right. there's a chance. Yeah, there's a chance. Yeah, yeah. So there's it's kind of... It's kind okay. of the mantra. So you join in, call it 20, 2009, 2010-ish time frame. Yep. And when we first met, you were uh, trading stocks, right? Uh, whipping the stuff around like any good hedge fund, I Absolutely. guess. Absolutely. Talk about your experience then as an investor, what you've learned over the last 10 to 12 years, and how you approach looking at companies today. So much has been gleaned from that period of time. When I first got into the business... It was still a period in time, well, one, energy in general has just changed so much since then. Right. Um, one of the things that was unique about BP Capital is that we had private investments and we were doing things on what now would be characterized as energy transition mm -hmm. or known by the broader acronym of ESG, which is you know now a known known, but back then everybody just called it renewables, right? right. Yep. But I tell the story often that we were doing landfill gas drilling at McComas Landfill, the largest landfill in Dallas, and I was on site watching us drill wells and produce renewable natural gas before anybody knew what RNG stood for. Mm -hmm. And now you got businesses like Arkea, which Danny Rice founded, mm -hmm. that sell for 30 times uh, current EBITDA multiples. I wish we would have recognized that and not sold that business, but it now be has become in vogue. On the hedge fund side, you know, our business was unique. Boone founded it after uh, Parker Parsley and Mesa joined to become what is now known as Pioneer Natural Resources. So he left um, Mesa when that merger happened, and he started uh, BP Capital. It's a phenomenal story. I think he started the firm in 1996-7, where he started it with, call it, $36 million in capital. That 36 went down pretty quickly to about $5 million in capital, and that $5 million in capital grew to $5 billion mm -hmm. based upon performance. Uh, the legacy product was commodities, and then in, call it the early 2000s, he launched a, a hybrid product that was equities as well as commodities, mm -hmm. and then launched, launched a pure equity fund as well. So the energy business changed with the renaissance of shale, which ultimately transpired into an incremental 7 million barrels a day of domestic production and ultimately disrupted the global supply picture. Right. But what was unique about that period of time is 
and you know this very well, John, is like anecdotes were critical, right? When right. you were delineating acreage, you had to know what that well could potentially be producing because if it produced, you know, if, if it came on and it was something that was exciting to the markets, well, then now you've delineated Southern Acres. That Southern Acres now has an implied option value associated with that acres. So now you see incremental nav that's going to be embedded with the, the stock, mm -hmm. and then the stock reacts to mm -hmm. that. So we went through this whole kind of bubble cycle within right. energy. Right. And it was really fun. It was crazy. It was chaotic. I mean, there were times that I'd be, you know, I always loved going to the actual well site and talking to, to the field hands and, mm -hmm. you know, hearing what they're learning, what they're seeing, what they're witnessing. Um, and many times that that would be valuable anecdotal evidence of what potentially could be happening as you're drilling these wells. And also from a market perspective, the markets today move so much faster than they right. did a decade ago. Right. And that has been a crazy phenomenon. You know, back then, um, you know, you didn't have as many momentum traders. You didn't have as, as many quant traders. The market is now moving at a rapid pace right. and the game and the dynamic has completely shifted and you only need to look at the evidence of Silicon Valley Bank, right? What transpired with SVB and you relate that to what happened in the financial crisis with yeah. Bear Stearns, SVB crashed in a day and a half. Right. You yeah. think you could liquidate your stock if you knew that there were serious issues with SVB? Heck no, it's air pocket down and now you're down 100%. Right. So it's a totally different dynamic today than it was back then and you started to see those changes occur and for instance, I was one of the, you know, there were a couple of things that I was, ha I happened to break on Twitter. I was early on Twitter mm -hmm. and I would come and I'd see something. We'd have a, maybe at some points we'd have a 10 minute spread, some commodity event that was happening in Iraq that the market wouldn't see until later on. Those ARBs are completely closed now. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. And I knew that that was happening when Bloomberg asked us to come into the office and they wanted to know what it was that we were focusing on. And they came out with a product called First Word. Mm -hmm. First Word was kind of their initial foray into tracking all of those anecdotal type components that relate into moving and variances in stock prices and commodities. Right. Interesting. You said something that uh, piques my, my interest here. Because I remember back in the, in the good old days when you, know, someone, you have a, a great IP on a well, to your point, everyone, oh, yeah. everyone would want to be aware of that. Uh, when we would write notes going to a performer life bill about, you know, new startup in a certain sector within OFS, people would, you know, you'd get mind share. People would call and want to talk about it. Totally. People don't really care today. Right? So I'm curious, uh, do you ever see that changing? I mean, if we're all going to, oh, if the stock's going to be a function of free cash flow yields and so forth, then the incremental well, does it matter? Does it not matter? The business models have changed and it's changed to a healthier capacity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So back then, right, it was, you were paying, you know, eight to 12 times multiples for EMP companies. Right. Now you're trading, you know, you got large cap that trades at four times and you got smaller caps, depending upon which company you're mm -hmm. talking about that traded a turn or, you know, three quarters of a turn discount relative to that. Some large caps traded, you know, slight premium relative to, to that multiple. But that environment to me, when you're in a highly volatile business, I'd, and I had been starting to make this argument beginning in 2018 to companies that I was invested in, mm -hmm. that you need to get to the free cash flow yielding model. And the numbers are pretty simplistic, thankfully, for all of us that aren't yeah. necessarily math wizards. <laughs> right. But you have 100 million barrels a day of supply and demand, roughly. Mm -hmm. And at best, 
you're growing one and a half percent, right? The rule of thumb is kind of half of yeah. global GDP is what your growth is. So say global GDP is 3% growth. So that would be 3 million barrels a day, cut that in half, one and a half million barrels a day of incremental supply that we need to find every single year in order for the market to theoretically be balanced. Mm-hmm. Uh, now take aside spare capacity and all those right. things, right? The problem is the United States, if they're growing, which they were at 10, 20, and 30% clips, mm-hmm. and thankfully, you know, use 10 as a round number, we don't need that much supply. Yeah. And so we put ourselves in that predicament. So mm-hmm. then what happens is the market naturally corrects, and it really expedited the correction with COVID, right? Mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think we would have found grace on free cash flow yielding vehicles if COVID hadn't have forced that upon the sector. Right. Now, I hate it because a lot of jobs were lost, right? right? right. You had to lay off a lot of people. You had to create a more efficient business model. You had to bring down the marginal cost of supply. Mm-hmm. But I don't necessarily foresee um, that environment changing today. Mm-hmm. Now, what will ultimately will happen, like all cycles do, and if you're a student of history, which I love history, mm-hmm. um, you know, what will likely transpire is you're gonna see more consolidations. Right. Yep. Then you'll see an eventual purging of non-core assets. Then you'll see independence that will sprout. Then you'll see more public companies in you know 10 or 15 years. And then you'll see development of new resources, new technologies, or new zones that we didn't necessarily know of. Then you'll see exuberance. And then you'll see higher multiples. And then you'll okay. see a crash. Yeah. So let's assume that your prophecy is 100% correct. How is BP looking at those opportunities yeah. today? Sure. So. So first, let me rewind a little bit, because yeah. for some of the people, I haven't necessarily disclosed. I've, I've decided to, after seven years of running my own hedge fund right. and investment management firm, decided to um, take an opportunity that I'm ex- extremely excited about. And really, it's kind of a reversion back to um, what I've known joining BP Energy Partners. So BP Energy Partners was formed and founded by my former colleague, Alex Seschek. Mm-hmm. Awesome guy. I've known him. We're you know, close, super smart guy, um, and his partner, um, Michael Watsky. Mm-hmm. So Mike was a former partner, Madeline Patterson. Okay. And what we do here is all private equity. So kind of taking it from the public side to the private side. Mm-hmm. And what I love about that is one of the biggest lessons, and you asked about lessons over the last 15 years, is duration is so important, right? Right. And so we're in this period of time with the regional banking crisis where people are like, you know, we're borrowing short to lend long. It's a mismatch of duration. Well, think about a hedge fund. You have short-term capital and you're trying to make long-term decisions. It's not too dissimilar from the type Mm -hmm. of scenario that is why the hedge fund business model candidly is changing, right? You're seeing people that are are giving forgiveness of fees in exchange for longer duration capital so they can lock it up. Mm -hmm. That's because of this duration mismatch that we're describing. They're trying to dissuade that from occurring. So here, what we're focused on has basically, since inception, since 13, has been this broader, what we characterize as practical decarbonization. Mm-hmm. So I think we all see where the puck is going. Right. And I think we would all agree whether you're on the left or on the right, you know, whatever whatever seat you're sitting in, that we all want a healthier, cleaner, smarter, more efficient mm-hmm. society. I don't think anybody's in disagreement with that. Right. So every business that we've been invested in since the initial fund that was launched in 13 and started um, you know, placing capital in 14 has been focused on this thesis. And it really dovetails nicely. And it began with Boone Pickens back in 08, right? With the launch of the Pickens plan. And then you can rewind it even further to 1988, which a lot of people don't know this, but at Mesa, he started Mm -hmm. what ultimately became known as Pickens Fuel Corp and was focusing on 
natural gas for transportation yeah. and just seeing that look the natural gas is simply cleaner cheaper it's abundant it's ours we've heard him say that a, a gajillion times so from day one they've been focused on this whole environment of you know how do you electrify the economy better you know how do you reduce emissions you know how do you focus on midstream in a smarter more efficient manner and we've got businesses you know that have that are going to be launching satellites to be able to monitor emissions that have you know on-site emissions monitoring incredible camera right. technology i was telling you earlier we've got a business that's focused on you know pigging operations yeah. for instance so that's the midstream side of the business mm -hmm. where they're compressing the natural gas capturing it before the pig and right. after the pig and all these things are things that you know boone started talking about forever ago four right. decades ago so not too dissimilar the, no and the, a lot of this stuff is ultimately intertwined some, yeah, that's yeah. What, for so, sure so i guess it all fits together taking it back a step to be in more john daniel language which is the dumb guy discussion <laughs> no do you ever see yourself coming back to a more to a true i'd say tr traditional ofs emp dabbling in acreage or do you stay away from that how do you so the firm here just to be clear i mean they've yeah. done very limited in terms of upstream investments right but like you but said you have a I mean, lot of expertise in that you hit yeah. the nail well because it yeah. all matters it all right? matters right i mean energy whether we like it or not i mean it's all, i mean i've been saying this for forever and all of the above right. i mean you got to yeah. utilize all sources of energy so of, of course like we're tracking everything i mean right. and we've got a ton of relationships and businesses that are working with a lot right. of these upstream you know they're partners of ours which is also what i love i mean i was an entrepreneur i understand like you do both bill and john i mean as entrepreneurs you know leaving yeah. a great comfortable seat and starting businesses you know i understand the blood sweat tears stress anxiety pain and sleepless nights that right. that transpire when you start a business that's why i was super stoked to be able to come over to the private equity side to be able to deal with entrepreneurs right so at the right. end of the day you're investing in other entrepreneurs that understand those same stresses right. that are also working in a symbiotic and a circular energy economy basis with all these traditional energy companies as well so it's all so like whether there will be direct upstream investments um i mean history would tell you that there really hasn't been mm -hmm. i think it was like 10 percent of fund one that was allocated upstream investments so very de minimis right. um and then i think fund two there were no upstream investments but all of our investments work with those upstream Absolutely. companies right. so it's all together right jump in if you got a question yeah. I, got, I got one here go for it uh, we always go back and forth um let's assume you decided you wanted to start an up you know raise a new fund focused on upstream or ofs speak to that market opportunity for raising those funds today does it exist or not it's a great question um i can i'll speak to experiences um so last august i was in new york to mm -hmm. try to raise capital for the firm and the performance i was blessed you know, to, sorry to just i kind of you ask a question and then i think of a bunch yeah. of different things yeah. and then i start to rewind a little bit but fascinating period of time i became a sole portfolio manager at 28 years old for boone pickens managing assets for a hedge fund that we manage internally and from the day that I became a PM, December the 1st of 2014 until March of 2020, I basically would manage through an environment that saw energy depreciate in value by 90%. Mm -hmm. So I feel very humbled by the fact that there probably aren't many other 36 year olds unless you've invested in energy that have experienced a down cycle, right? I mean, I graduated in May of 09. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if you're 36 or less, you've never seen and COVID is not a down cycle, right? For non-energy investors, that is not, I've experienced it for my entire career. Right. Yep. Um, so you learn a lot through that period of time. 
and you learn that it's really, really, really hard to make money. Um, and then you also learn that when capital leaves a sector, and rightfully so, right? I mean, if you look at debt and equity and the returns on issuances on both debt and equity since, you know, call it 2016, those returns weren't there for the investor, right? right? For traditional energy. So to answer your question specifically, no, I think that, you know, you have right now 12 to 15 billion of traditional energy private equity capital that's in the market to try to raise funds today. Mm-hmm. I think you'll probably see, you know, you'll probably see some of that get filled. But I think the days of the old model of, you know, acquiring new leasehold, developing and flipping, yeah. I think that's few and far between. I think, you know, you're starting to see it with, um, you know, Pioneer Natural Resources, for instance, right? They're kind of, you know, selling some non-core stuff. They've already cored up. Um, you know, you've got the succession plan in place. Who knows what the next route is? But I think raising capital, in my experience, in August, in terms of talking about from the investment management perspective, mm-hmm. the conversations, despite, you know, returns having been fortunate yeah. to be relatively good relative right. to, where, you know, we're all comped off of something in life. And the conversations where we like what you're doing, but um, don't think we can allocate because guess what? Our mandate is that, you know, you have to be fitting into this, even though I was also investing in green right. tech investments. Right. And, I'll, and one more anecdote for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I raised a, um, an SPV for a battery company that I love the business and raised $5 million internally and then raised an incremental 15 from a large prominent hedge fund and did all the diligence in the whole nine yards. It was amazing the differentiating, you know, the differentiators between raising that capital and raising capital that's intertwined between traditional as well as right. green tech investments. So I think it's still going to be, you know, you're going to be pushing a, a, a boulder up a yeah. up a mountain for a long period of time. And you were when you were doing that. Can I ask you a question though? But yeah. do we need that capital, right? If you're if you're in a free cash flow yielding environment, do we necessarily need the capital? I guess is a is a question for. For you well so you look at some of the people that have flipped recently number of those people want to come back and do it again to your point they want to buy non-core acreage from larger EMP companies they got to have funding to do that and then the theory is they go prove that stuff out and then they flip it again question does that theory work right but if pioneer you mentioned their name if them or others want to sell property someone has to be the buyer Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. So someone needs capital to be the buyer. And so the question is... And then if you're Conoco, right, you need scale in order for it to move the needle. So you're right. not going to be dealing with 100, 200 million. That's right. You need, you're not going to yeah. waste your time on, exactly. on that. But, but I want to go back because you <laughs> said you were in New York, and I guess, in August. Yep. Ballpark. I'm trying to I'm, I'm getting... No, you're right. I'm yep. getting old and forgetting when everything happened, but... You're not yeah. old. <laughs> I turn 50 next month. <laughs> Happy early birthday. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so anyway, the... You don't look a day over 49. <laughs> it's called stress. Yeah. <laughs> that keeps me looking thin. Um, but energy security was top of mind right. <clears throat> last year, right? Remember, we, we, we yeah, did totally. from oil and gas sucks to energy transition mat- or energy security matters, Russia, Ukraine. Has that, you don't hear about energy security as much today as you right. did. Nine months. Early ago. summer. It was like you, early you hear summer about that when but gasoline just, prices are high. That's right. what I'm saying. That's and right. so it's just interesting because you would have been doing this when energy security was at the forefront. Correct. Mm-hmm. And no one seemed to care. Yeah, Fair? I think that I mean, there's, a, yeah, there's a tendency to, 
um, pull up a stock chart and say I missed it. Right. Yeah. Um, which is understandable. I right. mean, you know, I, I understand those dynamics. Last year, I think it was a really pivotal year for, I feel like we've gone, I mean, every year in energy is always yeah, very there's dynamic. Always there's crazy. always something. But last right. year, we had the war, right? That's the ongoing, mm-hmm. you know, tragedy that's still occurring in Ukraine, Russia and Ukraine war. Plus, you had the Inflation Reduction Act. Right. Both of those things should be huge. BP Energy Partners should be a huge net beneficiary based upon both of those components. Because while energy security isn't, you know, something that you're seeing the media trumpeting on a 24-7 basis, I can guarantee you that Europe is still very well aware of the importance of energy security, right? And energy security also translate into more onshoring, right? Right. Right. You're seeing more domestic development, both, you know, in the United States and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. You're seeing a, a more aware consumer of energy, of where those molecules come from. So that's one thing that we're focused on here, right, is the software side of the business too. How do you start to track those molecules to actually, once they get into a pipe, once they get refined, once yep. those products are shipped, how do you know that the where those molecules have come from, mm-hmm. right? That all fits in the broader energy security, energy transition, practical decarbonization type bucket. We have a really unique business that's focused on those as well as the hardware side of it too, right? Right. So. I don't think that that mantra is going to change. Um, I think that it's very, you know, it's still there, but I think it also points on something that we haven't touched on, which is commodity prices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, last summer, the reason why gas is where it was and oil was where it was is out of fear. And fear drives panic purchases. Mm-hmm. And panic purchases out of Europe drove astronomical natural gas prices, which ultimately transpired into a um, deterioration of their industrialized economy, right? You saw businesses out of Europe that have forever shut down because of what happened last year. And what happened is it becomes an ARB, right? It becomes a shipping component, liquefaction plus shipping. How do you get the molecules to Europe? And so our gas prices domestically, because, you know, call it 10, 15% of our gas is being shipped offshore. um, You know, it drove our local prices higher as well. Now you've kind of come out of that window. We've seen that Russian oil and natural gas is still finding its place in the market. We've seen that Brazil is actually growing. You know, I'm very focused on Iran has actually seen increase in supply out of Iran. Mm -hmm. You've got Venezuela that people are starting to talk about. I know the United States is starting to have deeper conversations with Mm -hmm. Venezuela. And then you talk about, you know, what you're highlighting is that you've got more capital that's trying to, or at least raised capital. I highlighted the 12 to 15 billion Mm -hmm. figure. So how much room do we really have in this marketplace talking about the broader oil dynamics with 100 million barrels a day of demand and that one and a half million barrels a day of year over year increased demand Mm -hmm. to increase supply? That's why we got to continue to be disciplined. Right, right. And focused on returns for investors, focus on, you know, the free cash flow yielding vehicles, and then ultimately focus on, you know, when is the best time to be buying back stock? When is the best time? Like, there, we have to get more methodical with how we make decisions in the sector. Mm-hmm. And that's also one of the things that I'm super excited about to be working with our, you know, businesses that we have private investments in is, you know, how do we think through A, B, and C and you know how to, and that's one thing that they've always done a great job of historically and it just goes back to the background of our of our co-founders and what they've always been focused on. So 
Yeah. Oh, look, the, does that answer your question? That, sort actually, of. Kind I, of. I always, I always have more questions. Yeah, but I think, but Bill's got one. I'm going to let him. No, jump but in. like that discipline word. We, we've talked about that a lot lately, and that's really an interesting thing. You see the discipline both on the OFS and the EMP, on the EMP, the traditional energy side, that it's sticking now, right? Like totally. We talked about discipline back in 2018 too, and it never stuck. It was always someone would do something to not be disciplined. It's finally sticking there, which gives you the returns. Yep. to bring people back uh, when you know I, like but as soon as you question, start bringing people back then margins get compressed right and so that's the like that's where those questions so that, that's the other thing from. too that we haven't touched on right we're in a totally different dynamic than we've been in yes you right. almost you could go back now so 79 volker you know go back to three and a half decades yeah now you're competing with higher interest rates yep so you got to have a spread relative to those interest rates in order to be able to justify, you know, putting that money into the ground. Right. And otherwise, Bill, you can sit there and say, nah, I'd rather put it in treasuries than put it in company that's yielding 9%. Right. And which is a Which, by the way, the treasuries have a, you know, historical one and a half, two 2% default rate. Right. Whereas we know energy is a little more volatile than that. Yeah, a little than that. more volatile than that. But it, it does, you know, you've talked around this a, a bunch and, we, you know, we... we tend to focus on the traditional. You're kind of moving in all these other you know directions, but surrounding it and finding those returns has got to be interesting for you now. Again, talk about your history. Finding those like outsized returns and private businesses has got to be pretty interesting. For it, you. it is. And so what we, you were talking, y'all were both talking about the OFS space, which John and I like met over <laughs> OFS stuff. And mm -hmm. we, I mean, I just like think about like Clint Walker, for instance, one of my all-time favorites. I mean, you know, I'm smiling thinking. I mean, we yeah. just the conversations you have, the barbecues. Did I ever tell you my Clint Walker story? No, what? Tell me, no, please. No, go for it. All right, so we got a second here. Sorry. Yeah. But, no, I love it. But uh, so the other a couple weeks ago, I was in Midland. I had to cook barbecue. Uh, that's what we do at DEP is cook yeah. barbecue. And uh, I was storing my, my smoker over at one of the yards in Odessa, and I had to drive it from Odessa to the Bynum School in uh, Midland. Of course, me being a you know, dude from Pittsburgh that doesn't really, I pretend to be Texan. Um, I don't think I knew you were from Pittsburgh. I am. Yeah. But I, I, I apparently Pittsburgh. I I thought I had hooked up the stroke the smoker to the the truck and the, the hitch oh, yeah, correctly. But I I didn't apparently, and I, I learned that I hadn't hooked it up until I went over some train tracks, and I felt the ba boom right, and the tr the the smoker comes free right as I'm merging onto I-20 business. Oh, wow. And so thankfully I had the chains hooked up on the truck and I was able to get the pit dragged off the side of the highway. And then I have that moment like, oh shit, what have I just done? I could have killed somebody. And I'm like two feet from I-20 and these people speed in Midland. And, uh, oh, yes. and so, and of course I'm skinny and weak. And so I couldn't pick up the smoker by myself. So who do I call? I call Clint Walker. I say, Clint, I need some help, buddy. And he's like, where are you? What did you do? That's the right person to call. <laughs> yeah. 15 minutes later, he was there, tools in hand, helped me get the the, the smoker back on the truck. At, you know, That's good awesome. good people. So he not, wins. Not surprised. He wins the OFS Executive of the Year Award. Oh, so, nice. Yeah. Yeah. That, That's one thing. That one. The people is what I love the most about the energy business and yeah. the broader energy landscape is the people that we get to interact with are right. incredible. Um, it, but you, we were talking about OFS in general. Mm -hmm. And some of the things that we love to do, so it wouldn't be directly right with the pressure pumping business, but tied to pressure pumping, right, is we've got tier four DGB and electrification of this, of spreads that is, it's, 
you and I started, we started talking about this years ago. Right. It's now like at the forefront yep. right. and it's occurring today. Right. Well, how are you going to fuel, you know, those spreads, right? So we've got businesses, for instance, that are focused on transporting the LNG, okay. you know, yep. to the, to the pad site to make sure that these spreads can operate effectively, efficiently and on time. And right. one of those businesses called Cryoport, you know, we've been in conversations with good friends and, you know, think it's a phenomenal business. So those are things we like to look for. Sure. Right. And that's how we drive value, right, is is leveraging relationships in the field, the people that you love, the people that you work with, finding a business, you know, infusing some growth, growth equity into the business, allowing for, you know, that business to drive incremental revenues through a, a product that's differentiated, that's more efficient and effective. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, at some point down the road, you know, some, if it doesn't, you right. got to monetize the business, and right. that's the the nature of the private equity world. Fair. Right, but a cryoport, something like that. Exactly, you're going to get more of that terminal value. Than totally, what we're seeing, yeah. kind of amongst our friends, both in the OFS world and the EMP world. That like, not this isn't this is a very broad generalization, but like when you go talk to people in New York about capital in the space, they're kind of like, well, you guys aren't going to exist in five years. Like, here's another and thing. you ridiculous. Well, but, you, you yeah. also, like, think about emissions and think about the EMP space. So the, one of the one of the largest emitting sources are tank batteries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we have a business in Sino Environmental Services right. that has developed a proprietary thief hatch that you literally replace your pre-existing thief hatch and tank batteries, which, by the way, there's a lot of tank batteries domestically. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge opportunity there and everything's fully patented so don't go and try to copy us <laughs> and that business you know we've seen huge demand for that that we just launched that a couple of weeks ago but right. that's how like the businesses that were invested in that's what i've been saying for the last right since the firm was founded 10 years ago we've been focused on all of these things that the market now just now finds them to be relevant right Mm-hmm. And that's where we drive value yeah. is we've just been focused on the broader energy economy and, you know, how does practical decarbonization look to us? And it just so happens to be that the market has gotten to where we are. Mm-hmm. And we feel we feel like we're benefited from the standpoint that there aren't many firms that you can find that have a 10 year track record of having done this since inception. Right. And now everybody sees the acronyms and sees, you know, where capital is potentially flowing to. And now they want to go and launch some product. Right. That's why we're excited. Well, good. I'm going to take us back a little bit again. Let's do it. Sorry. Uh, go back to your days trading stocks. Okay. Because we, we touched on this right before we kicked this thing off. But um, this earnings season, we saw Diamondback change up the style yep. with yep. their earnings call. Put, basically putting out a shareholder letter, which summarized the, the salient data points, and then a much more succinct conference call. Totally. SM Energy has done something similar, but we still have some companies that will typically do their prepared remarks for 30, 40 minutes. How would you advise a company yeah. from an IR, from a communication standpoint, to to deliver the, the best message to shareholders? Totally. Make, makes sense. I think first and foremost, um, I kind of laugh about this, but also a, a person in the industry that has done a phenomenal job and has, and has maintained a premium multiple um, would be Joe Foran and Matador. Okay. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's always a function of under-promising and, and over-delivering. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of that, I would assume, and John, you're going to be better at answering this, has to stem from a great relationship with the sell side as well mm-hmm. to be able to walk them through what the potential numbers on that quarter is going to look like to assure that you know, they're brought up to speed, that their models are up to speed. Because at the end of the day, that's what you're going to be comped off of, you know, when numbers are ultimately released on that day. In terms of how the process is run, 
you know, there are just less eyeballs on the energy space in general. And I think, you know, for the most part, those eyeballs are um, at least have some experience within energy. So I think the days of needing to walk through essentially what the press release has previously stated yeah. is probably there's a better use of the C-suite's time and probably a better use of the investor's time as well mm-hmm. and diving into the questions. I think another thing too, and I believe it was, um, who was it? I, I think it might've been David Einhorn or a podcast that I listened to a few months ago. And I totally agreed with his point on this. And his point was the quality of questions have deteriorated a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the dialogue would be much healthier if we could have real debate type questions that were proposed to the management team while also realizing, recognizing you got to preserve a relationship. So it's not right. something that's like a harsh question, right? It's how right. you phrase the question, but it helps us define better answers that provides you know better insights into the business that ultimately allows the buy side to have a better trajectory. All of us recognizing that you know, the single, single most, um, single largest determinant of what the share price is going to be is what the commodity is going to do. Mm-hmm. So just focusing on what their business is, where it's going, under-promising, over-delivering, um, distilling the message very succinctly, and then jumping into the Q&A, but allowing, you know, tough questions to be asked that will hopefully aid in, in right. making people more aware of the business. Well, I, I do agree that, that a lot of times people during earnings season, they can't fully prepare right. for every call. True. And so you listen to the conference call. You're, you know, trying to take notes as fast as you can, and you, and then you end up asking stupid questions. And I'm guilty as charged no. for asking stupid questions on earnings calls. But I also but think sell side spread thin right now because yeah. lack of lack of demand from the buy side. Lack of I demand, and in some cases, lack of experience too uh, yeah. with some of the guys. But the uh, no, I just I and I know when you read transcripts because we read them all the time. Yeah. Or listen to the calls. With all due respect to the people that are transcribing conference calls, sometimes they make a ton of errors because they can't understand the speakers. And so the transcript becomes worthless. So if you you got a prepared set of remarks as a company, just file it as an 8K or put it out as a press release. Anyway. um, Next one is on share buybacks. Uh, If you're a sector that's out of favor, and there's a lot of, for instance, OFS stocks that are trading near 52-week lows right now, um, if the investors don't want to buy your stock, should the, should the companies be buying their stock? Yeah. I can speak a, to that. Great question. So so Boone used to hammer into our heads that I'd rather have the cash than you know the management team making the decision of what they're going to do with my cash. Mm-hmm. And he was a huge proponent. You know, he was one of the, I think he created the first master limited partnership. Okay. Yeah. The dividend yield was his, like all of those things. He was an innovator from that standpoint. And... So he's always he was always a very large on the on the dividend aspect of the business. Energy, my experience is energy, as we all know, is incredibly volatile, mm-hmm. and I think that management teams there there's a better methodology um, to buying back stock, and it has to be looked at on a volatility adjusted basis. So with the commodity being as volatile as it is. Mm-hmm. You can't just be looking at an energy stock on a net asset value basis. There has to be a, a volatility component to it as well. Mm-hmm. And NAVs are inherently just static measures, right? Because you're basically you know, saying, here's the curve. Here's this price deck. Here's this. Okay, here are probabilities waiting upon yeah. you know, what we think those prices could ultimately be. And so now here's our theoretical intrinsic value. Mm-hmm. So if stock ABC trades at a discount relative to intrinsic value, we slam on, we buy shares, and that's how we're going to allocate our dollars. 
I think that there are ways to do it more efficiently mm-hmm. and that if you commingle on a volatility adjusted basis purchasing shares when you're in the money relative to you know where oil's implied volatility is then you're going to by commingling those it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy right of making right. sound business decision decisions and the same can be said for mergers and acquisitions as well right. so for buybacks on OFS specifically I think there is a an argument to be made that it's important to also be building cash on balance sheets, preparing for inevitable down cycle that'll mm-hmm. occur. Yeah. I think you need a component of that. I think you need a component of buybacks, just given where companies right. are trading. I think the management teams have to be very in tuned in terms to what it cannot be based upon multiples. It has to be based upon something else on where right. their company, whether it's you know, it could be a replacement value type metric, right? I know you love right. that. I love those type of measures as well. Right. They know what their business is worth. So if it's trading at a substantial discount, um, then I think that's important. Another thing too, John, that I spent some time talking to management teams about, and a lot of people don't understand this, is that the large institutions cannot buy stocks that trade at less than $10 per share. Right. We have a big issue with that across the board. Um, I've advised, you know, to some capacity and advise is not the right right word because I'm not a paid consultant, but more so just in conversations that I think that if you, I think reverse stock splits, it gives people a bad name from the standpoint that they do studies and they say, oh, reverse stock splits, stock gets crushed. Well, that's people that are financially in disarray, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. And so if you actually wipe that out of the data set and look at companies that are healthy, and what that can do, I think it could drive incremental demand because another component of this is liquidity, stock liquidity is what I'm talking about, not cash liquidity for the business. That becomes a big issue as to why people can't buy. So if you're buying back shares, you're removing liquidity from the stock market, which also creates another issue, right, for trying to see a stock appreciate. So it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. I think it'd be, you know, what does, what ProPetro does relative to what ProFrac does relative to what Liberty does is going to be different based upon those particular right. business models. Okay. Well, we are nearing our 45-minute yep. mark. Uh, Bill, any co- final questions or parting thoughts? I, I was going to That's what I was going to ask Billy. If yeah. he, he had any, you know, final thoughts, you know, anything else you want to talk to us about? You know, I think the closing thoughts would just be, you know, we're fortunate to be in an incredible sector. I think in my conversations, you know, with the green tech side as well as with traditional energy side is a lot there's so much overlap between both sides right and that the media just gets into this fighting game and tries to you know put this division line between the two there really isn't such a thing you talk to the people in the renewable space whether it's wind and solar they understand we're going to be utilizing traditional energy for a long period of time you talk to people in traditional energy and they understand that there's you know there are some pros to utilizing renewables there's pros to utilizing battery storage there's pros to utilizing electricity as well for, for engines, what, right? That's why they're investing in it. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So my point is, it's one team, one dream. Right. We're all fighting for the same thing. We invest and you know we're in an incredible sector that ultimately is uh, has direct ties to longevity of life. And you look at energy use per capita and you know, you can see that, you know, there's a direct correlation between, you know, the average lifespan of that particular, you know, country. Mm-hmm. You yep. utilize more energy, um, it's better for the economy, it allows economies to grow quicker, and it's better for life in general. And that doesn't just have to be oil and natural gas, it can be all the above. And I think everybody agrees with that. So right. thank you all for 
thanks for letting out. us yeah. stop by. Really, thanks for letting yeah, letting us do it on the road and good to see you again. And it's awesome. Yeah, we'll we'll get this out and as soon as we can. Hopefully yeah. in a week or maybe two. we can yeah. figure out a way to do something creative and fun and bring it all together in the future. We can. Yeah. I mean, especially I mean, we got the the barbecue captains over here. That, I mean, you gotta. <laughs> yeah, we we should do a vegan event. Yeah, there <laughs> so, we go. For, so, all right. Love it. Thank right, you all. Take Thanks. care.